Chapter Two of the Eye of Dread. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Eye of Dread by Payne Erskine. Chapter Two: Watching the Bees. Father Ballard walked slowly up the path from the garden, wiping his brow, for the heat was oppressive. Mary, my dear, I see signs of swarming. Bees are hanging out on that hive under the Tolman Suite. Where's Betty? She's down in the cellar, churning, but she can leave. Bobby's getting fretful anyway, and she can take him under the trees and watch the bees to amuse him. Betty! Mary Ballard went to the short flight of steps, leading to the paved basement, dark and cool. Betty, father wants you to watch the bees, dear. Find Bobby. He's so still I'm afraid he's out at the currant bushes again, and he'll make himself sick. Keep an eye on the hive under the Tolman Suite, particularly, dear. Gladly, Betty bounded up the steps and darted away to find the baby who was still called the baby by reason of his being the last arrival, although he was nearly three, and an active little tyrant at that. Watching the bees was Betty's delight, minding the baby, lolling under the trees, reading her books, gazing up into the great branches, and all the time keeping an eye on the hives scattered about in the garden. Nothing could be pleasanter. Naturally, Betty could not understand all she read in the books she carried out from the library, for purely children's books were very few in those days. The children of the present day would be dismayed, were they asked to read what Betty pondered over with avidity and loved. Her father's library was his one extravagance, even though the purchase of books was always a serious matter, each volume being discussed and debated about, and only obtained after due preparation by sundry small economies. As for worldly possessions, the Ballards had started out with nothing at all but their own two hands, and, as assets, well-equipped brains, their love for each other, a fair amount of thrift, and a large share of what Mary Ballard's old Granny Sherman used to designate as gumption. Exactly what she intended should be understood by the word it would be hard to say, unless it might be the faculty with which, when one thing proved to be no longer feasible as a shift toward progress in the making of a living for an increasing family, they were enabled to discover other means and work them out to a productive conclusion. Thus, when times grew hard under the stress of the Civil War, and the works of art representing many hours of Bertrand Ballard's keenest effort lay in his studio unpurchased, and even carefully created portraits, ordered and painstakingly painted, were left on his hands, unclaimed and unpaid for, he quietly turned his attention to his garden, saying, People can live without pictures, but they must eat. So he obtained a few of the choicest of the quickly produced small fruits and vegetables and flowers, and soon had rare and beautiful things to sell. His clever hands, which before had made his own stretchers for his canvases, and had fashioned and gilded with gold leaf the frames for his own paintings, now made trellises for his vines and boxes for his fruits. And when the price of sugar climbed to the very top of the gamut, he created beehives on new models, and bought a book on bee culture. Ere long he had combs of delicious honey to tempt the lovers of sweets. But how came Bertrand Ballard, away out in Wisconsin in a country home, painting pictures for people who knew little or nothing of art and cared not to know more, raising fruits and keeping bees for the means to live. Ah, that is another story, and to tell it would make another book. Suffice it to say that for love of a beautiful woman, strong and wise and sweet, he had followed her farmer father out into the newer west from old New York State. There, frail in health and delicate in choice in his taste, but brave in spirit, he took up the battle of the week with life, and fought it like a strong man, valiantly and well. And where he got his strength? How are the weak ever made strong? Through strength of love, the inward fire that makes great the soul, while consuming the dross of false values and foolish estimates, from the merry heart that could laugh through any failure. 
and most of all from the beautiful hand, supple and workful, and gentle and forceful, that lay in his. But this is not the story of Bertrand Ballard, except incidentally as he and his family play their part in the drama that centers in the lives of two lads, one of whom, Peter Craigmill, Jr., comes now swinging up the path from the front gate, where three roads meet, brave in his new uniform of blue, with lifted head, and eyes grave and shining with a kind of solemn elation. Bertrand, here comes Peter Jr. in a new uniform, Mary Ballard called to her husband, who was working at a box in which he meant to fit glass sides for an aquarium for the edification of the little ones. He came quickly out of his workroom, and Mary rose from her seat and pushed her mending basket one side, and together they walked down the path to meet the youth. Peter Jr., have you done it? Oh, I'm sorry. Why, Mary? Why, Mary? I'm astonished, not sorry. Bertrand took the boy's hand in both his own, and looked up in his eyes, for the lad was tall, much taller than his friend. I would go myself if I only had the strength and were not near-sighted. Thank the Lord, said his wife fervently. Why, Mary, Mary, I'm astonished, he said again. Our country, yes, our country is being bled to death, she said, taking the boy's hand in hers for a moment, and, turning, they walked back to the house with a young volunteer between them. No, I'm not reconciled to having our young men go down there and die by the thousands from disease and bullets and in prisons. It's wrong. I say war is iniquitous, and the issues, north or south, are not worth it. Peter, I had hoped you were too young. Why did you? I couldn't help it, Mrs. Ballard. The call for fifty thousand more came. And father gave his consent, and, anyway, they are taking a younger set now than at first. Yes, and soon they'll take an older set, and then they'll take the small and frail and near-sighted ones, and then she stopped suddenly with a contrite glance at her husband's face he hated to be small and frail and near-sighted she stepped round to his side and put her hand in his i'm thankful you are bertrand she said quietly you'll stay to tea with us won't you peter we'll have it out of doors yes i'll stay thank you it may be the last time and mother i came to see if you'd go up home and see mother mrs ballard i kind of thought you'd think as father and mr ballard do about it and I thought you might be able to help Mother see it that way, too. You see, Mother, she... I always thought you were kind of strong and would see things sort of, well, big, you know, more, as we men do. He held his head high and looked off as he spoke. She exchanged a half-smiling glance with her husband, and their hands clasped tighter. Maybe, though, if you don't feel this way, you can't help Mother. But what shall I do? The big boy looked wistfully down at her. I may not be able to help her to see things you want, Peter Jr. Maybe she would be happier in seeing things her own way, but I can sympathize with her. Perhaps I can help her to hope for the best, and anyway, we can just talk it over. Thank you, Mrs. Ballard, thank you. I don't care how she sees it. If, if she'll only be happier, and give her consent, I can't bear to go away without that. But if she won't give it, I must go anyway, you know. Yes, she said, smiling. I suppose we women have to be forced sometimes, or we would never allow some things to be done. You enlisted first and then went to her for her consent. Yes, you are a man, Peter Jr. But I tell you, if you were my son, I would never give my consent, nor have it forced from me. Still, I would love you better for doing this. My love, your inconsistency is my joy, said her husband, as she passed into the house and left them together. The sun still shone hotly down. The shadows were growing longer, and Betty left Baby asleep under the harvest apple tree, where she had been staying patiently during the long, warm hours, and sat at her father's feet on the edge of the porch, where apparently she was wholly occupied in tracing patterns with her bare toes in the sand of the path. 
Now and then she ran out to the harvest apple tree and back, her golden head darting among the green shrubbery like a sunbeam. She wished to do her full duty by the bees and the baby, and at the same time hear all the talk of the older ones, and watch the fascinating young soldier in his new uniform. As bright as the sunbeam, and as silent, she watched and listened. Her heart beat fast with excitement, as it often did these days, when she heard them talk of the war, and the men who went away, perhaps never to return, or return with great glory. Now here was Peter Jr. going. He already had his beautiful new uniform, and he would march and drill and carry a gun, and halt and present arms, along with the older men she had seen in the great camp out on the high bluffs which overlooked the wide, sweeping, rushing, willful Wisconsin River. Oh, if only she were a man, and as old as Peter Jr., she would go with him. But it was very grand to know him, even. Why was she a girl? If God had only asked her which she would rather be when he had made her out of dust, she would have told him to make her a man. So she might be a soldier. It was not fair. There was Bobby. He would be a man some day. And he could ride on a large black horse, like the knights of old, and go to wars, and rescue people, and do deeds of arms. What deeds of arms were, she little knew but it was something very strong and wonderful that only knights and soldiers did. Betty heaved a deep sigh, and put out her hand and softly touched Peter Jr.'s trousers. He thought it was the kitten purring about. No, God had not treated her fairly. Now she must grow up and be only a woman, and wash dishes, and sweep and dust, and get very tired, and wear dresses, and, oh dear, but then perhaps God had had to do it that way. For if he had given everybody a choice— Everybody would choose to be men, and there would be no woman to mind home and take care of the little children, and it would be a very sad kind of world, as she had often heard her father say. Perhaps God had to do with them as Peter Jr. had done with his mother when he enlisted first and asked her consent afterwards, just make them girls, and try to convince them afterwards that it was a fine thing to be a girl. She wished she were Bobby instead of Betty, but then Bobby might not have liked that. She glanced wistfully at the sleeping child and saw him toss his arms about and knew she ought to be there to sway a green branch over him to keep the little gnats and flies from bothering him and waking him, and the bees might swarm and no one see them. Father, is it three o'clock yet? Yes, dearie, why? Goody, the bees won't swarm now, will they? Will you bring Bobby in, father? He is very well there. We won't disturb him. Peter Jr. looked down on the little girl, so full of vitality and life and inspiration, so vibrant with enthusiasm and saw her vaguely as a slightly disturbing element, but otherwise of little moment in the world's economy. His thoughts were on greater things. Betty accepted her father's decision without protest, as she accepted most things, finality to be endured and made the best of, so she continued to run back and forth between the sleeping child and the porch, thereby losing much interesting dialogue, all about camps and fighting and scout duty, until at last her mother returned, and with a glance at her small daughter's face, said, "'Father, will you bring in the baby now and put him in his cradle? "'Betty has had him nearly all day.' "'And father went, "'Oh, beautiful mother, how did she know?' "'Then Betty settled herself at Peter Jr.'s feet "'and looked up in his eyes gravely. "'What will you be, now you are a soldier?' she asked. "'Why, a soldier?' "'No, I mean, will you be a general, or a flag carrier, or will you drum?' "'I'd be a general if I were you, or else a drummer. "'I think you would be very handsome for a general.' Peter Jr. threw back his head and laughed. It was the first time he had laughed that day, and yet he was both proud and happy. Would you like to be a soldier? Yes. But you might be killed, or have your leg shot off, or... I know. So might you. But you would go, anyway, wouldn't you? Certainly. Well, then you understand how I feel. I'd like to be a man, and go to war. 
and have a part to tear a cat in two. "'What's that? What's that, Mary? Do you hear that?' said her father, resuming his seat at Peter's side and hearing her remark. "'Why, father, wouldn't you? You know you'd like to go to war. I heard what you said to mother, and anyway, I'd just like to be a man, and have a part to tear a cat in, the way men have.' Bertrand Ballard looked down and patted his little daughter's head, and then caught her up and placed her on his knee. He realized suddenly that his child was an entity unfathomed, separate from himself, working out her own individuality almost without guidance, except such as he and his Mary were unconsciously giving to her by their daily acts and words. "'What books are those you have there? Don't you know you mustn't take Father Shakespeare out and leave it on the grass?' Betty laughed. "'How did you know I had Shakespeare?' "'Didn't you say, would like a part to tear a cat in?' Oh, have you read Midsummer Night's Dream? She lifted her head from his bosom and eyed him gravely for a moment, and snuggled comfortably down again. But then, I suppose you have read everything. Her father and Peter both laughed. Were you reading a Midsummer Night's Dream out there? No, I've read that lots of times, long ago. I'm reading The Merry Wives of Windsor now. Mary, Mary, do you hear this? I think it's time our Betty had a little supervision in her reading. Mary Ballard came to the door from the tea-table where she had been arranging her little set of delicate china, her one rare treasure and in inheritance. Yes, I knew she was reading, whatever she fancied, but I thought it wouldn't interfere, not yet. I have so little time, for one thing, and anyway I thought she might browse a bit. She's like a calf in rare pastures, and I don't think she understands enough to do her harm, or much good either. Those things slide off her like water off a duck's back. Betty looked anxiously up at her mother. What things was she missing? She must read them all over again. What else have you out there, Betty? asked her father. Betty dropped her head shamefully. She never knew when she was in the right and when wrong. Sometimes the very things which seemed most right to her were most wrong. That's Paradise Lost. It was an old book, father. There was a tear in the back when I took it down. I like to read about Satan. I like to read about the mighty hosts and the angels and the burning lake. Is that hell? I was pretending if the bees swarmed that they would be the mighty host of bad angels falling out of heaven. Again Peter flung back his head and laughed. He looked at the child with new interest, but Betty did not smile back at him. She did not like being laughed at. It's true, she said. They did fall out of heaven in a swarm. And it was like over at High Knob on the river bank, only a million times higher, because they were so long falling. From morn till noon they fell, from noon till dewy eve. Betty looked off into space with half-closed eyes. She was seeing them fall. It was a long time to be in suspense, wasn't it, father? Then everyone laughed. Even mother joined in. She was putting the last touches to the tea table. Mary, my dear, I think we had better take a little supervision of the child's reading. I do, really. The gate at the end of the long path to the house clicked, and another lad came swinging up the walk, slightly taller than Peter Jr., but otherwise enough like him in appearance to be his own brother. He was not as grave as Peter, but he smiled as he hailed them, waving his cap above his head. He also wore the blue uniform, and it was new. Hello, Peter. You here? Of course I'm here. I thought you were never coming. You did? Betty sprang from her father's lap and ran to meet him. She slipped her hand in his and hopped along at his side. Oh, Rich, are you going too? I wish I were you. He lifted the child to a level with his face and kissed her, and set her on her feet again. Never wish that, Betty. It would spoil a nice little girl. I'm not such a nice little girl. I... I love Satan... And they're going to to supervise my reading. She clung to his hand and nodded her head with finality. He swung her along, making her take long leaps as they walked. You love Satan? I thought you loved me. It's the same thing, Rich, said Peter Jr. with a grin. 
Bertrand had gone to the kitchen door. Mary, my love, here's Richard Kildine. She entered the living room, carrying a plate of light hot biscuit, and hurried out to Richard, greeting him warmly, even lovingly. Bertrand, won't you and the boys carry the table out to the garden, she suggested. Open both doors and take it carefully. It will be pleasanter here in the shade. The young men sprang to do her bidding, and the small table was borne out under the trees, the lads enumerating with joy the articles of Mary Ballard's simple menu. "'Hot biscuits, my golly! Won't we wish for this in about two months from now?' said Richard. "'Cream and caraway cookies!' shouted Peter Jr., turning back to the porch to help Bertrand carry the chairs. "'Of course we'll be wishing for this before long, but that's part of soldiering. We're not looking forward to a well-fed easy time of it, so we'll just make the best of this tonight and eat everything in sight,' said Richard. Bertrand preferred to change the subject. "'This is some of our new white clover honey,' he said. I took it from that hive over there last evening, and they've been working all day as if they had a new life given to them. All bees want is a lot of empty space for storing honey. Richard followed Mrs. Ballard into the kitchen for the tea. Where are the other children? he asked. Martha and Jamie are spending a week with my mother and father. They love to go there. And mother and father, also, seem never to have enough of them. Baby is still asleep, and I must waken him, too, or he won't sleep tonight. I hung a pail of milk over the spring to keep it cool, and the butter is there also, and the Dutch cheese in a tin box. Can you... wait, I'd better go with you. We'll leave the tea to steep a minute. They passed through the house and down toward the spring house under the maple and basswood trees at the back, walking between rows of currant bushes where the fruit hung red. I hate to leave all this, maybe forever, said the boy. The corners of his mouth drooped a little, and he looked down at Mary Ballard with a tender glint in his deep blue eyes. His eyes were as blue as the lake on a summer's evening, and they were shaded by heavy dark brown lashes, almost black. His brows and hair were the same deep brown. Peter Jr.'s were a shade lighter, and his hair more curling. It was often a matter of discussion in the village as to which of the boys was the handsomer. That they were both fine-looking lads was always conceited. Mary Ballard turned toward him impulsively. Why did you do this, Richard? Why? I can't feel that this fever for war is right. It is terrible. We are losing the best blood in the land in a wicked war. She took his two hands in hers, and her eyes filled. When we first came here, your mother was my dearest friend. You never knew her, but I loved her, and her loss was much to me. Richard, why didn't you consult us? I hadn't anyone but you and your husband to care. Oh, Aunt Hester loves me, of course, and is awfully good to me. But the elder, I always feel somehow as if he expects me to go to the bad. He never had any use for my father, I guess. Was my father... was he no good? Don't mind telling me the truth. I ought to know. Your father was not so well known here, but he was, in Bertrand's estimation, a royal Irish gentleman. We both liked him. No one could help it. Never think hardly of him. Why has he never cared for me? Why have I never known him? There was a quarrel, or some unpleasantries, between your uncle and him. It is an old thing. Richard's lip quivered an instant. Then he drew himself up and smiled on her, and he stooped and kissed her. Some of us must go. We can't let this nation be broken up. Some men must give their lives for it, and I'm one of those who ought to go, for I have no one to mourn me. Half the class is enlisted. I venture to say you suggested it, too. Well, yes. And Peter Jr. is the first to follow you? Well, yes, I'm sorry, because of Aunt Hester, but we always do pull together, you know. See here, let's not think of it in this way. There are other ways. Perhaps I'll come back with straps on my shoulders and marry Betty some day. God grant you may. That is, if you come back as you left us. You understand me, the same boy? I do and I will, he said gravely. 
That was a happy hour they spent at the evening meal, and many an evening afterwards. When hardship and weariness had made the lad seem more rugged and years older, they spoke of it and lived it over. End of chapter 2 Recording by Chelsea Baker